Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 240, Viking Roadshow, Rollo Edition. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' episodes by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for only about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Mark, Josh, and Charles for signing up already. A massive fleet was off the coast of Kent, heading directly for Alfred's realm. It was a fleet of 250 ships, teeming with skilled, highly experienced raiders. But fleets don't materialize out of thin air. They come from somewhere. And curiously, over the last 14 years, the scribes of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle were actually giving the backstory to this particular fleet. Because this fleet is the very same one that occupied Fulham in 879 all the way back when Alfred had only just defeated Guthrum and his kingdom was stretched too thin to be able to oust them. And if you were reading the Chronicle without any idea of what was coming, the last dozen or so years would have seemed a bit strange, especially since there were many events in the intervening years that deserved details, but were denied in lieu of the yearly travel log of Olaf and his friends. But what the scribes appear to have been doing was foreshadowing, albeit in a clumsy way. This fleet would turn out to be a massive threat to Wessex, rivaling that of Halfdan and even Guthrum. And while the scribes were apparently tasked with being as frugal as possible with the ink budget, they still were doing their best to emphasize the sheer level of danger that this fleet posed. Now, the Frankish annals and poems also record Viking activity in Francia during this period, and they sometimes seem to match with what the scribes are talking about. However, the dates and sequencing don't match perfectly, and there are actually quite a few Scandinavian armies running around. So here's what I'm going to do to give you an idea of what the scribes were talking about, and also give you a sense of what this army was. I'm going to give you a quick rundown of what the scribes had to say about the army, and where possible, I'm also going to point to recorded Frankish battles that coincide with the story that the scribes are giving us to flesh the whole thing out. And it all starts back in 879, which is when this army first appeared in our story. A large army appeared out of nowhere, right in the middle of a political upheaval in Wessex. And they took advantage of the situation by seizing Fulham, and they stayed there until 880. But after that occupation, they once again left British shores. And the Chronicle tells us that they set sail for the religious and commerce-focused city of Ghent in Francia which is now located in modern-day Belgium. And they occupied that city for a year. In 881, the army left Ghent and went deeper into Francia. It's not clear exactly where they were headed, but we have one enigmatic entry in the Chronicle about the Vikings' encounter with a large army of Franks. It says, quote, This year went the army higher up into Frankland, and the Franks fought with them, and there was the army horsed after the battle. End quote. And I can't help but wonder if this was the Battle of Thymion, which took place near modern-day Charleroi, which was less than 100 kilometers south of Ghent. And the reason why I suspect that is because the Frankish sources talk about how an army of Northmen came from Britain, settled on the River Scheldt, which runs right past Ghent, and then marched south to Thymion. So this does sound like the same group. And if that's the case, this battle was a bloodbath. 
The Franks did eventually win possession of the field, but the only living son of King Louis the Younger of Saxony, Prince Hugh, was slain. And this was a major event in Francia, because it meant that East Francia now had a chance to be reunited under the rule of Charles the Fat. And no, I don't think he picked his own nickname. Actually, there's no contemporary record for people talking shit about his size, or referring to it at all. There's no Frankish annal that refers to Chubby Chuck. Instead, it all began because of a 12th century historian from Saxony, and then the nickname just stuck. And this is why you should never mess with historians. You piss one off, and suddenly people will forget all about your accomplishments, and instead spend their time snickering at your potentially legendary love handles. Anyway, Charles the Fat, he was now in line to have a largely reunited kingdom, provided, of course, that King Louis didn't live too long. And the whole thing is really complicated, but basically, Francia had been fracturing rapidly as the kingdoms were being split up and shared among various sons and grandsons and great-grandsons. And the easiest way to get them all back together to one cohesive kingdom was for most of the kings and heirs to die. And the Vikings were doing their part to help. So, even though they managed to kill the crown prince, the Viking army was pushed back by the Frankish army. But it wasn't defeated, nor was it dispersed. In fact, in the aftermath of the battle, the Danes managed to acquire horses for themselves. It doesn't mention how they did this, and whether it was the result of some sort of tribute, or whether they just stole the horses from the Franks. But whatever the case, this army just got a lot more dangerous. They were now mobile infantry. In the next year, in 882, they moved up the Meuse, and they occupied an unnamed territory in that region for a year. Athelweird adds to this that they camped at Elslu, and some argue that the Battle of Sukor took place here. However, Sukor was far to the west, and it's possible that the Frankish annals were referring to a different Scandinavian army entirely. Because everything regarding this army is set place pretty firmly in eastern Francia. So Sukor would have been one hell of a detour. So, I suspect that the army that was referred to in the Frankish poem wasn't the same one that we're following. But after holding Elslu, the army packed up their booty and they went up the Scheldt until they hit Cond, which they seized and held for a year. Then they went up the Somme and seized Amiens, holding it for a year. And remember what all of this means. We aren't talking about a whole bunch of backpackers who were just hanging out in Amiens, teaching a few language classes to pay the bills, and generally soaking up local culture. These were warriors who were raiding their way through the countryside and violently seizing these towns, then looting them, grabbing slaves, selling what they could, reprovisioning, and likely acquiring reinforcements in the form of crews that wanted to join the victorious army, or locals who felt that going a Viking was a better bet than continuing to live under Frankish rule. So what we're looking at here is five years of this army leveling up with only one loss. This army was doing really well. In fact, it did so well that it was getting a bit too unwieldy. So it split into two parts in 885. One part went to Rochester, and they were defeated by King Alfred in that battle we spoke about several episodes back. And then it looks like they engaged in a couple punishing naval engagements. But as for the other part of the army, the part that didn't go to Britain, we have one other enigmatic comment. The Chronicle just says, quote, one part east, end quote. There's no mention of exactly what their target was to the east of Amiens. 
though Athelweird later adds that their target was Luvong. But wherever they went, the next year, the eastern portion of the army moved west along the Seine, and we're told they wintered in Paris. And it sounds so simple and serene when the scribes describe it. They just wintered there. Like they rented rooms at an inn, hung out in cafes, and got dirty looks from the waiters because they couldn't speak fluent French. But here's how it actually went down. Late in 885, in November, a massive fleet gathered at the recently conquered Rouen. And the fleet's goal was a grand campaign of Francia. They were seeking riches, and it looks like the army that the scribes have been following joined that army at Rouen. And we're talking about a fleet of hundreds of ships. Abo actually claims there were 700 ships. But even assuming that these numbers were exaggerated for literary purposes, and Abo was a well-known exaggerator, and even if modern historians are correct, and the number was closer to about 300 ships, we're still looking at a gargantuan fleet. Such an army would have numbered around 10,000 warriors, and depending on the types of ships that were deployed, that army could have been well over 10,000 warriors. And at its head were two captains, Siegfried and Sinric, and they knew what their army was capable of. Complete devastation. So they sent a demand to King Charles the Fat. They wanted tribute, or they would lay waste to Francia. Now, the Franks balked at this because they'd only recently paid the army 12,000 pounds of silver to leave the country in peace. But the Danes replied that their agreement, this 12,000 pound agreement, it was to leave the king in peace. And that king had just died. This, by the way, is where all those boar safety tips from a few episodes back will start to make a lot more sense. Because the king that made that original agreement was the same one who tangled with a boar and lost. King Carloman II, nephew of Judith. That Judith. So King Carloman II was dead after his pursuit of a pork chop ended in tragedy. And as far as the Danes were concerned, the agreement died with him. Because there was no such agreement with King Charles the Fat. But the two Viking leaders weren't completely unreasonable. And they told the emissaries of Charles the Fat that they would offer them the same deal they cut with Carloman II. Hand over 12,000 pounds of silver, and we'll leave you in peace. And Charles basically said, you can kiss my fat ass. And the Danes didn't appreciate that. So they took their fleet, and they sailed up the Seine. But they didn't make it all that far, because they were blocked by a low-lying bridge. And when they reached that bridge, the Frankish forces fell upon them. Eventually, the Danes won this battle, and they continued to press upriver. But what the great fleet didn't realize was that this was only the first taste of what was awaiting them. Paris had learned from the last time it was besieged by the Vikings. The Franks had been steadily fortifying the city, and now, flanking the island city, were two low bridges. Previously, the Danes had been able to sail up the river with impunity. But these bridges would hamper and control their movement, much like what Wessex had done with its bridges. Francia had been slow to react, but after repeated attacks and the three sacks of Paris that it suffered in the 860s, it had finally joined the arms race. And so now Paris had a stone bridge to the south and a wooden bridge to the north, and both bridges were protected by well-fortified stone towers. And that is what the Viking fleet saw 
when they reached Paris in late November. These bridges were a concern. And frankly, Paris was looking like a pain in the butt. And here's the thing. The Vikings' goal here wasn't occupation. It was riches. And now that Paris was heavily defended, it didn't hold the same appeal. Now it was just a roadblock. There were better, easier targets farther upriver. So Siegfried offered to leave Paris in peace if they would just allow the fleet to go past the city. And of course, if they would also pay him tribute. The Count of Paris, a man named Odo, refused and instead began preparations for the defense of the city, despite the fact that he was low on men. But Odo did have one key mark in his favor. He had the support of the local nobility and a holy man named Goslin, who was known as the Fighting Bishop. But this was going to be a hard-fought battle. A day or two later, on the 26th of November, the fleet began its siege of Paris, and they attacked the northern bridge, the wooden one. And it was the obvious choice, because the tower which defended it was still incomplete, and the bridge would be easier to destroy, and once that was accomplished, it would allow the fleet to sail deeper into Francia. But even an incomplete tower would be a danger. The Danes would need to clear it before they did anything else. So they launched an assault using catapults, mangonels, and ballista. But the walls were too thick. Nothing could get through. So then they tried to set the tower on fire and tried to breach it using battering rams and even attempted to dig deep enough to undermine it. They placed archers on their ships, ready to fire at any Franks who came from behind the walls to defend the city. But no matter what the Danes threw at them, the defenders on the tower, bolstered by the presence of the fighting Bishop Goslin, held their ground. They pelted the oncoming Danes using bows, hand-to-hand weapons, and anything else they could throw at the raiders. When the Danes tried to scale the walls, the Franks poured boiling pitch and wax down upon them. The Danish losses were mounting. And even more worrying, these Franks weren't just holding their ground. They were using any time they had between the assaults to further fortify the tower. They were building it up as quickly as they could, and they quickly added another story to it. So they weren't just defending, they were constructing. So don't let anyone ever tell you that video games aren't like real life, because this is exactly like every tower defense game you've ever played. But anyway... In response to this surprisingly stout resistance, the Danes withdrew to the northern shore and began constructing an encampment. If they couldn't take the city via a direct assault, then they would besiege it. They would starve them out. But at the same time that they were building their encampment, the Danes were also building new war machines. They were getting ready for the next major assault. But don't forget that their main goal here wasn't to capture Paris. I mean, I'm sure they wanted to punish it for resisting them, but their main goal was to get past Paris. But for now, they were stuck in siege warfare. And that left a massive raiding army in the middle of France with little to do and a largely undefended countryside. So for two months, as they made their preparations, the Danes pillaged the countryside without any real resistance. We're talking about thousands, perhaps over 10,000 pirates set loose upon an undefended population. The suffering and losses would have been widespread. And then, in late January, they attacked Paris again. 
the Danes split their forces in three, attacking the tower and the bridge it protected from both land and river. They were battering the tower using rams and war machines while also trying to attack the bridge directly by setting it on fire. But despite their plans and the constant barrage on the city from their war machines, nothing. The Franks held them off. The tower and the city held. This was an all-out war, but after two months of this, it had become clear that they had underestimated the city. And they still wanted to get past Paris. But even if they wanted to take Paris, they first needed to defeat this tower, which couldn't be done so long as the Franks could move freely between the tower and the city. So Siegfried and Sinric tried a new tactic. They would destroy the bridge and thus allow them free movement upriver and also cut the tower off from the city. So the Danes began dumping debris, rocks, trees, the bodies of prisoners, ox carcasses, and anything else they could get their hands on into the river, hoping the pressure from the buildup of debris would eventually bring the bridge down. And when that didn't work on its own, they set fire to three ships and guided them to the bridge. They would burn the bridge down. However, they did too good of a job setting their ships on fire because the ships burned and sank into the river before they ever reached the bridge. But even though the fires failed, the wrecks from the ships collided with the wooden supports of the bridge, adding to that field of debris. And in February, it began to rain. It was a deluge, and the river began to rise. All the water is pressure building by the cubed meter on top of all of that built-up debris, and it pushed against the supports of the bridge. Eventually, the inevitable happened, and the bridge finally collapsed. After holding out for over two months against everything the Viking army could send at it, the tower and its men were now isolated. The Danes gave the defensive force a chance to surrender, but the Franks refused so they killed all who were in there. And it turned out there were just 12 Frankish warriors holding the tower when the bridge fell. But it was a victory, and now they could get past Paris. However, there seems to have been a split in goals. Some wanted to stay on and take Paris. After all, they'd been sat outside it for pretty much forever. But others had clearly lost interest in the siege now the passage was clear. And besides, Count Odo clearly wasn't intending to pay them a dime. And there were other towns that could be pillaged. Towns that weren't so well fortified that 12 men in a f***ing tower could hold off an entire army. So the army split up. Portions of the great army struck camp and left to pillage other Frankish towns, including Le Mans, Chartres, and Evreux. But not all of the army. Some remained and held the siege including a man whose name is likely to ring a bell. Rollo. Now there was a brief attempt at lifting the siege by Count Henry, but it failed and the Scandinavian forces relocated to the southern bank, likely to better control any Frankish movement to and from the city. And by March, Count Odo was ready to strike a treaty, likely because of an epidemic that was raging through Paris and had even struck the fighting bishop Goslin. So he offered the Danish army 60 pounds of silver to leave. Just 60. It was a pittance compared to the 12,000 pounds initially sought. 
However, even though things within Paris were starting to look dire, Count Odo probably knew that the Danes were losing their patience and were looking for greener pastures. And the gamble paid off. Siegfried took the money, and he left with his men to find better targets to loot. But not everyone went with Siegfried. Rollo wasn't ready to give up. Nor were many of the other Danes who remained. And after Siegfried departed, the remaining Danes attempted to take the city in a direct assault. And this one ended the same way that all the others had. So, Rollo and the Danes returned to their siege camps. But their numbers were dwindling. It was getting harder to maintain the siege and keep Paris cut off from the rest of Francia. And in the summer, Count Odo was able to sneak out of the city and gain reinforcements and supplies. However, now that he was out, he needed to get back in. And between him and Paris were the forces of Rollo. The Danes readied their shields and prepared to defend the siege against the charge of Count Odo and his reinforcements. But their defense was broken when the forces from within Paris sent a sortie out to attack the Danes from the flank. In the confusion, the Count, his reinforcements, and the supplies they acquired all made it into the city. And they slammed the gates shut behind them. This was a problem. And Rollo and his army responded to it by fortifying their position directly in front of the bridge. Now thus far, they just fortified their camp. But now that the Franks were engaging in coordinated strikes and breaking through the Danish lines, something more substantial would have to be built. So the path leading to the bridge was surrounded by ditches, palisades, and all the fortifications they could manage. And then the Danes set to work hiding those defenses and covering the ditches with branches and debris. It was a brilliant move. And they didn't have to wait long before they tested their new defenses. Because Henry of Saxony appeared on the horizon with his forces, and he led a charge straight at the Danes to free Paris. And then he fell into one of the hidden ditches, and was immediately slain by the Danes in full view of his men. The Frankish army panicked at the sight, and immediately routed. This situation was getting out of hand, and Charles the Fat finally decided to get involved, and he moved on Paris. He ordered 600 Frankish warriors to assault the Danes and make their way into the city to supplement their defenses. And this time, despite the Danish defenses, the Franks were able to force their way in. Rollo's siege was going from bad to worse. And then Charles the Fat, along with his army, appeared on the horizon. Seeing this, Rollo and his forces abandoned their siege and retreated to their fortified encampment on the south side of the river. Paris, at last, was free. After more than six months, people could finally get in and out of the city. And in a twist of fate, now the Danes were under siege in their encampment. And rather than risking the lives of his men by leading an assault upon the walls, Charles and his army set about laying siege to them. He was going to starve them out. But what Charles the Fat forgot was that Rollo wasn't the only Dane in Francia. And Siegfried, one of the original commanders of this army, got word of what was happening to the remnants of his fleet. And fat chance he was going to let this slide. It took less than a month for him to gather another fleet and make his way to the Seine. And in response to this, Charles immediately sought to make peace with the new army. If they would leave his lands in peace, 
he promised to allow them to travel upriver into Burgundy and raid as freely as they wanted up there, and he would pay them 700 pounds of silver. Siegfried agreed to the terms, and Paris was, at last, free of the Danes. For now. Rollo would eventually return, and when he does, he will found the House of Normandy. But this was the battle that was described by the scribes as, quote, wintering in Paris, end quote. And that's something to keep in mind about all of these battles. These conflicts were brutal, punishing, and if you learn anything from Paris, is that there really weren't winners, especially for the side that was being besieged. Weathering one of these things wasn't really a win, and this wasn't even an occupation. Ultimately, this came down to a fight over a bridge, followed by what looks like a punitive attack because their feelings were hurt over that whole boiling pitch event. Furthermore, when we look at the details rather than just the bullet point version that our stingy scribes give us, we see that the Scandinavians aren't just acting as opportunists anymore. They aren't just doing hit-and-run strikes. They're engaging in prolonged battles, and they're so good at recruitment that they're able to quickly replenish their numbers, even when fights go badly like they did in Paris. But to bring it back to our story, while Alfred was re-establishing London and gifting it to Elderman Athelred of Mercia, the Viking army was besieging Paris and creating an existential crisis for Charles the Fat. This was no minor Viking raiding band. It wasn't even a minor army. Paris was, at best, a Pyrrhic victory that would have probably broken lesser armies. But this particular pirate army was still going strong and managed to squeeze 700 pounds of silver out of the deal. And the next year, in 887, they headed up the Seine to the Marne and reached Chezy. And there they established two settlements, one at Chezy and the other on the River Yon. And they hunkered down deep. They were there for two years. Of course, they definitely raided while they were there, but their base of operations for the next two years was static. And keep in mind that Francia was one of the most powerful political entities in the West, but they were also fractured. The kingdom of their forebears was divided and often warred amongst itself. And against that backdrop, this enormous Viking army was marching around with relative impunity, raiding as it liked, and even striking their greatest cities. It was virtually a superpower in its own right. But in 890, the tide began to turn. The army re-emerged from their holdings and traveled along the Seine to Saint-Lô. And there, they were met by the army of Breton and were defeated. The chronicle actually goes so far as to tell us that many in the Viking army were literally driven into the river and drowned but they weren't wiped out. And in the following year, the army moved east into the kingdom of East Francia, King Arnulf's territory. And there they fought the Eastern Frankish army. And once again, they found their luck was abandoning them and the army was crushed. This defeat was so complete that it ended their raids up the Rhine. And so in 893, they decided to try their luck elsewhere. They moved west to Boulogne, then loaded their ships with all their possessions and weapons of war, even taking their horses. A total of 250 ships were loaded, and they were bristling with highly experienced veterans of countless battles. 
and they crossed the channel and made landfall in eastern Kent, in the woods of Andred. Meanwhile, a second fleet of 80 ships made their way up the Thames, and leading them was a man named Haston. Alfred's peace was over. Now he would return to the way of life that had dominated his days ever since he was a child. War had returned to Wessex, and this time he was ready. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach us on Twitter. We're at British Podcast, and there are plenty of other communities you can join, and you'll find links to all of them in the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.